Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to begin today. So if you do not have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? And one of the guys will get you a Bible. We're going to start there um, and stay in Galatians chapter 3 and finish up that chapter. Uh, So raise your hand real high and the guys will be able to see you. And as you guys are getting your Bibles, just one announcement I want to place before you guys. Uh, We are sending a team, as we do every year, to Fiji. Um, And part of that is we are raising support and raising money for them to send that team down there uh, that will be headed up by Rick Priggy. And so as you came into uh, the service today, you would have seen that there was coffee there uh, provided freely by Bros and Brew Cafe. Now, here's what you can do to help Fiji. If you can make a donation, whatever donation is fit for you, all of that money will go to uh, Fiji. And so we can be thankful for Bros and Brew Cafe, which is a local shop here in Tempe, to be able to bring iced coffee. And so if I, if I see you guys in here fidgeting, I totally get it. I totally get it. That's what Ice Toddy will do to you. So on your way out, if you want a cup of coffee and you want to donate some money, or you don't want a cup of coffee, but you want to donate some money, uh, you can stop by, stop by their, uh, their booth there on the way out. Galatians chapter 3. If you've been tracking for a while now, we see we've said that this, this book is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to the church that is in Galatia. Um, So far, we've seen Paul explain the gospel in several ways. Um, Explain ultimately that salvation or justification, how one is made right before God, comes by faith and faith alone through grace and grace alone. How a person is made righteous is by faith and faith alone. And so last week, what we saw um, beginning in chapter 3 is that Paul makes an argument now to this church. And the argument that he's trying to make with them is that it's always been by faith and it's always been by grace. The first couple verses in chapter 3 lets us know experientially how the Galatians became Christian, that it was by grace through faith. And then he goes theologically, Paul shows, that it was something by grace through faith. And then what we have this evening is that Paul takes a huge section of Scripture, um, essentially verses 10 all the way to 29, and tells us in a narrative that it's always been about grace through faith. And so he points to a particular person, and that person is Abraham. And Abraham was someone that was important to the Jewish people, who at that time, the Judaizers were people who were trying to tell the Galatian church that the way that you were made right before God is by faith in Jesus, but also by obeying the law. And they pointed back to Abraham. And mainly Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, that Abraham was circumcised. And since he was circumcised, he obeyed the law, and that's why he was righteous. Well, Paul now retells the story in light of Abraham and in light of the gospel to say that God made him right before himself by his faith before he was circumcised. And so we'll look at Abraham um, and what that means today. Um, Three things that we'll see in this section of scripture. We won't be able to hit every single verse, but we'll see the promise of God, the law of God, and ultimately the grace of God. So the promise, the law, and the grace of God. So uh, before we jump in the text, would you guys bow your heads and And uh, let's ask God by his Holy Spirit to illuminate the text, his word, and our time. Father, we thank you so much that we can come to you as your children, um, that we can come to you, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. God, we do pray for your spirit to be with us and to guide us, to lead us, that you would remove me, that we would see your cross, and we would see the power of the resurrection, and that the name of Jesus would be glorified. God, we exist to glorify your name, and Lord, there is nothing else um, that we exist for, and so we ask for your help. Um, we ask for your, your, your spirit to guide us, to remind us, uh, many of us who know you, and for those here who do not yet know you, God, that you would make yourself unbelievably clear. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I've shared this story with you before, but when I came to college, or to Arizona, to college, I came ultimately not necessarily to go to school, but just to be at college. Um, I thought Arizona State University, who wouldn't want to go there, great school, highly, highly academic, and we would, we, would, we would be there for a while, and I would have fun, and that's exactly what I did, and my first semester GPA um, showed that. I had a .67 GPA my first semester. <laughs> go ahead, you can laugh. The irony is that is I graduated and majored in education, which was sad. Um, I had, a, I had a, point, a 0.67 GPA, and um, some people say, you know, every time you say that, it seems like you're bragging. I kind of am, because a 0.67 GPA is really, really hard to do. Um, have you done it, right? So that's what I tell people. The, the, the part that, that brought it home to me, the, the seriousness of it, is um, when I was first there, when I first got to school, my coaches would say, hey, how's school going? And I would give this, this lie, oh, you know, I'm, I'm trying really hard, it's a hard transition, but you know what, I'm going to pull it through, right? Because that's what coaches always say, every time. If you ever see a coach that's interviewed, oh, we're trying really hard, but we're going to pull it through. Like, a liar. And so I'm sitting there, lying to my coaches, and then, well, that coach and staff got fired, and they brought in another coach who happened to care about academics. And so he brought me into his office, which I thought was brilliant, because when I sat at his desk, he had a list of paper, uh, he had a paper with a list on it, and it wasn't facing him, it was facing whoever would sit in that desk, which I know what he was doing, and the title of it said, screw-ups. <laughs> My name was on that list, right? <laughs> I saw that, you're Ricardo, yep, two C's, that's me. And, and, and he says, okay, let, let me tell you something, um, you, you got a .67 GPA last semester, I'm like, newsflash, yeah, I knew that. He goes, do you realize that if you essentially don't get straight A's this next semester, that you will flunk out of school? And I thought, okay, now I got serious. What he, what, he, what he did for me, he didn't tell me anything new. I knew my situation. I just didn't know how bad my situation was. And all the thoughts came through my head. He, what he did was saying, let me just show you in a mirror of what you look like, and let me show you the consequences of your actions. They, 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 will, they will get you kicked out of this university, and you will be back in Southern California after one semester of being here. And so what he let me see is that I needed help. Clearly, I couldn't do it on my own. Um, I had a few learning disabilities and a thing called laziness, and I needed, I needed help. And so I needed a tutor. I needed a guide. Paul now introduces in this section something that he's almost been talking about in a negative light, and that is the law. And what we'll see here after seeing the promise of God is that there was a purpose of the law of God. The law of God was not to bring, bring faith. Ultimately, the law of God was not to bring life, but it was ultimately to show us the reality of our condition apart from God and lead us to a Savior. And so Paul starts here, um, we're going to pick up in verse 15, after talking about the purposes of the law, how it, if you don't obey the law, you're cursed, and now how Jesus came now and became a curse for us, and then he reintroduces to us Abraham. Verse 14, Paul starts and says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let me just pause here for a second and explain to you Abraham. If you've been around church for some time, you know who Father Abraham, you know Father Abraham had, had many sons and, and many... <laughs> and I am one of them. So they're, 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 you know Father Abraham. But some of us here, we don't know who Abraham is. And so Abraham happens to be the father of three major religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Paul now goes back to trace to Abraham, remember, because now he is combating the Jewish thought or the Judaizer's thought that Abraham is someone to point to for his circumcision. Abraham is someone to point to because what he did, and Paul says, no, 
I'm going to point to Abraham, not because of what he did, but who he believed in. And so he retells the story. And the story is this. Um, many theologians say, if you want to read the Bible and split it in halves, you would split it into starting Genesis 1 through 11, and the second half will be Genesis 12 through Revelation. Point being is this, Genesis 1 through 11 ultimately teaches creation, man's sin, and how God recreates after the flood in Noah. And then Genesis 12, God begins to set a long plan of redemption. Ultimately, how God himself is going to work through human history to guide it towards its intended purposes. And so he begins, he chooses a man named Abram. Abram was not a guy who was righteous. Abram wasn't a guy who was perfect. He was just a man living in a rich community. And God says, come out of your community and go to a place where I won't even tell you. And then God gives him a promise. And the promise was that through Abraham, through his seed, ultimately the nations will be blessed. That God preached the gospel, as it says in chapter, excuse me, in chapter 3, verse 8, through Abraham. And the gospel was this, that God was going to work through human history, ultimately, not just for the Israelites, but for every single nation, every single race, every single ethnic group, every single tribe, every single people group that would come to know God by faith and faith alone. So Paul points to that. Another thing that Paul points to by showing this story of Abraham is that Abraham was accredited righteous or justified before God by faith. This happened in Genesis chapter 15. The way that that went was when God promised them a land, God promised them a people, God promised that all nations would come and be blessed through his seed, that that promise ultimately was ratified by a covenant. And the covenant that they had there, you can read about it in Genesis chapter 15. Um, God comes to Abraham, and Abraham at this moment, he's 99 years old, and he, and he doesn't have a child, him and his wife, and God promises him again, you're going to have a child. There's going to be a nation. People will be blessed. You're going to have this land. And he goes, how am I supposed to know? And then God did what was, what was good and what was, what was common in ancient time is he had made, they made a covenant. And so in this covenant, he had to give five animals. There was a heifer, there was a ram, there was a goat, there was pigeons and turtle doves. And they were supposed to split the animals in half. So kill them, split them in half. And what was common at that time is when two people enter into a covenant that they would link arms or at least walk next to each other in between those things, signifying if I break my part of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. But what we see is when Abram said, hey, how do I know? And he split the animals. After that happened, God caused a deep sleep to come over Abram. And he was asleep. And then it says that a pillar of fire, ultimately uh, signifying God walking through the carcasses. That God himself said, this promise that I made to you, it's not if you keep your part of the deal, but God says, I will keep my part of the deal. And if I don't, may what happened to these, to these animals happen to me. So, so God does the unthinkable and the impossible. He says, no matter what, Abraham, I'm going to fulfill my promise. That's what Paul comes to when he talks about the promise of God. That, that lets us know a couple things. First, it lets us know that God does not come to his people and say, hey, be good, and if you're good, I'll give you my favor. But the opposite. God comes to his people and shows them his favor or his grace, and that he encourages us ultimately to live good, live good people. It's in response to what he's done. The, the, the next thing that we see in this, in this covenant that he makes with Abraham is that it's it's not conditional upon our obedience to the law. It's ultimately up to God and God alone. And so, even back in Genesis, 
throughout the whole Bible what Paul is trying to tell the Galatians who were not Israelites, who were not circumcised. He was saying it's always been about faith and it's always been about grace through God's promise. And it wasn't about circumcision. In fact, circumcision didn't happen until two chapters later. Now, did Abraham get circumcised? Yes, but that's what God had for them. We don't have to worry about that. Abraham was, Abraham was 99 years old when he got circumcised. Ouch, right? But, but Paul makes that point clear. Now, and continuing to impact the promise of God and talking to the Gentiles, or excuse me, the church in Galatia here, he says in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so now Paul talks to the church in Galatia, and he's trying to explain to them in human terms. And the word covenant here, it's the same language we'd have for a will. And Paul is trying to say, once a will or once a covenant has already been ratified, you can't change it. And some people would say, well, you can change it. I can make a will right now for, for my two boys. They can get all my possessions. They can be millionaires as soon as, they, as, soon as they, I, I die, which is, is weird coming out of my mouth. But if I die, um, they can get a bunch of things. But I can change that now. What Paul is communicating is, once a person's dead, you can't change it. Um, for me, when my, my grandmother left me some things, and when she died, I, I received it. Um, millions and millions of dollars, right? It was actually like a 97 Nissan Sentra. Balling. Um, so Paul is saying, you can't change it. You can't change it. And, and, and he says, because the promise came to the seed in verse 16. Um, and the seed ultimately is Jesus Christ. Now, this seed is important here because you can look at seed in the Greek and the Hebrew as singular or plural. So what Paul does here, um, being guided by the Holy Spirit, is he looks at the story of the Old Testament and sees ultimately, um, to see this in light of redemptive history, the seed in itself was not what was immediate, that Abraham did have a son and there was a nation, but ultimately it pointed to Jesus. And this was something that God had promised even at the beginning of the Bible. In fact, hold your place here and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Um, it's the very, very beginning of your Bible. Give you some time to get there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Um, God is giving curses to, after sin to Adam, um, to Eve, and to the serpent. Now, to the serpent, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What's happening there is God ultimately is telling the serpent, there will be a, the woman's seed. Um, the, the woman will have a child. One day you will try to bruise his heel, but ultimately he will crush your head. Um, what theologians call there is that's just the beginning, the hints of the gospel, that ultimately that seed would be Jesus Christ. And that Satan himself will bruise his head, but God ultimately working through Jesus, Jesus being fully man, fully God, will eradicate evil. Even though evil had just entered into the world because of man's sin, God promised, even then, I'm going to take care of this. And if you follow the biblical story, you see that seed. That same seed goes from Adam and Eve's kid, Seth, to ultimately Noah. Um, 
The enemy tried to, to intervene there, couldn't do it. They came to Moses. When Moses was born in the time in Egypt with Pharaoh, they were trying to get rid of, of the firstborn kids. Yet Moses' mom looked at him, thought he was special, put him in a river, float him down, and then somehow caught him later and, and raised him. The seed goes on to David, ultimately to Jesus Christ. And so Paul says the promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. It was ultimately Jesus who would be the one who would fulfill the promise that God made and that we now receive the promise by faith in Jesus, that we are united with the promise that God made to Abraham in Jesus. Again, by faith and faith alone and by grace and grace alone. And Paul explains that to them talking about this seed. He wraps up this first section and talk about God's promise um, by saying in seven, verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. All he's saying is this. 430 years after the promise came the law. God gave the law to Moses, and, and all Paul is saying is the law is good, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but it doesn't get rid of this. It doesn't get rid of God's promise. It's completely finished. It's done. Even though the law came, it doesn't get rid of it. He's making the argument. It's always been about faith and not about grace. Verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to, a, gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, what Paul does now is he shifts gears from talking about the promise of God into the law of God is he, he now plays devil, devil's advocate. And so he asks some questions that he thinks that his audience would ask. And I think they're helpful questions, especially if you've been tracking with us in this series. We talk about the law, and it almost seems like Paul is saying the law is bad. Never think about the law. It has no purpose. Now, because of Jesus, the law has no meaning to the Christian. And yet, this is what he says. He, he has two questions. The first question is in verse 19. He says, why then the law? Why the law? There's, there's three uses of the law. One use of the law is... Um, to restrain sin. And so they would say that's the civil use of the law, meaning people who don't believe in God or believe in God, we have laws and they're good things. It's good for us to know that we shouldn't murder people. Um, really, really good that we shouldn't murder people. There's also another use of the law that once becoming a Christian and believing in Jesus and having the Holy Spirit, that the law now can be used as a guide, as a, as a means to understand how to please God and how to walk in light of God. We're going to talk about that in just a few weeks. And then there's another use of the law, and that use of the law is to show man and women how helpless they are apart from God, how sinful they are apart from God, to show you, as my coach did, the consequences of what you've done. And, and hear me on this. Some people say that's the problem with Christianity. It seems like God just thinks that he wants everyone to see how bad they are. Listen, the doctrine of, of total depravity that shows you that we're wicked has nothing to do with the fact that you're not, you're not good people. Um, it has nothing to, it's not trying to get you to think that somehow you're inadequate and you have to be afraid of um, trying to be perfect, but you can't no matter how hard you try. The Bible is clear. Um, you have worth and you have value because you've been created in the image of God. What the doctrine of, of, of total depravity and what the law ultimately exposes is your spiritual condition. Meaning, apart from God, you cannot reach him. The law shows you that he is completely holy and that we are not holy, that his character is not like our character. No matter how hard we try to live up to standards, even our own standards, cultural standards, biblical standards, that we cannot live up to God's law. And hear me out. Some of you, you're better than others. If it came down to it and God says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grade on a curve, um, some of you guys can get in and some of you won't, some of you guys would get in. And other, other people like myself... 
I'd be out, right? So I'm so thankful for grace. Some of you, you're just good people. It'd be like um, if, if, the, if the idea was for us to get to God and we had to jump over a river, let's just say that, um, some people will go further. So let's just picture this, right? So there's three of us trying to jump over the river. Um, there's David Blakeman, who was leading worship today, and... Um, you thought that was funny. And then, and then there's, there's uh, Jason Raber, who's one of the pastors here. And then let's just say it's a jumping competition. I'm in this competition. <laughs> right? So, so David goes first, and he doesn't go very far because we know how athletic uh, worship leaders are. And so he, he goes, and then Jason goes, and, and, and Jason tries to go really far. And, and Jason would tell you he's a star basketball player, a Valley Christian Trojan. And so he goes, and he goes further than David, but he doesn't make it. And then I go. All right? And let's just say I go further than all of them for obvious reasons. <laughs> They're obvious, right? <laughs> Even though I can jump past Jason and David, and I, I still wouldn't land. The, the point of what Paul is saying is, no matter how hard you try, no matter your background, no matter the way you were raised, no matter what church you grew up in, no matter your pedigree, no matter how smart you are, no matter how good you are, you still don't add up, and God's standard is perfect. That, that's what he's trying to communicate here to the law. What the law does is it, it exposes you. And not only does the law expose you, but in, in some cases, the law increases sin. Now, now, hear me out on this. It doesn't make you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Um, I, I try to explain this to people. When I tell a lie, I don't, I don't become a sinner. I tell a lie because I'm a sinner. And so when I say that the law increases sins, that it shows in you desires that you didn't think you had, that it just brings out, like what Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so there's things that you don't know that, um, that you're sinful in until, or desires that you have until it's exposed to you. It's, it's the old adage, don't look down. And everybody goes, oh, we got to look down. And that, that's what it is. Or a better example would be, would be this. A funnier example would be this. Um, we, we, got an, we got an opportunity, my wife and I, to go to New York in November, and there's a family here that has parents that live in New York, and they said, you can stay with our parents, I'll take care of you, and we were like, really? That's awesome, because it's so expensive to live in New York, so we st- or stay in New York, we stay with their parents, and her mom emails us and says, when you get in, we're going to make cinnamon rolls and chili, and I was like, and I always do this to my wife, I'm like, man, white people, man, you guys eat some just crazy stuff. <laughs> I know it's not fair, because if she did it the other way, it'd be racist, I know. Um, <laughs> I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> it's so not fair. <laughs> so we get there, and, and we get there, and the mom's in the house, and she's rolling out the dough, and she's making these cinnamon rolls, and she's got all the fixings next to the chili, and we sit down, and I, I bit into the cinnamon roll, and then ate the chili, and I thought, oh my goodness. I never knew this. I'm white, right? I, this... This is awesome. I was like, this is great. I'm like tweeting things out, Facebook. And, and, and some of you guys probably know, if you're, if you're from like uh, obscure places and weird, weird places, you've had these cinnamon rolls and chili, but it was great. I had no idea that I was genetically predisposed to liking chili and, and cinnamon rolls. And two, I had the opportunity. I was, I was exposed to it, and I realized, wow, this is really, really good. In, in, in a more serious way, that, that's what the law does it shows you that there's more in you, there's more sin in you, there's more desires in you that are not in line with God than you would normally think. And so the, the question then is, okay, well, that's the law, and that's the law that God gave Moses. What if we didn't grow up around the law? What about people who never had the law? What, what about the Gentiles at this church? They didn't have the law. 
Well, hold your spot here again and turn to Romans chapter one to the left. This is again the Apostle Paul speaking about the condemnation that comes and that the law brings. But this time, not the law of God, but even the, um, the conscience law that God puts in all of us. Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 18, all the way to verse 25, Paul says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. Hold on. The, what Paul is saying here is, one, God has made it clear to us, even without the law of God, the written law that he gave to Moses, and he's made it clear through his creation. That every single person who believes in God or doesn't believe in God knows that there's something. You may say that there's a higher being. You may say it's something that can be explained by science. Whatever it may be, we look at creation. We look at the things made by God, and we go, there's got to be something. And Paul says it without excuse. And then when we see here, when it says the wrath of God is coming, we, we normally think of the wrath of God as God throwing down fire or throwing down lightning bolts. But what we see here is the worst thing that God can do to you and me, like the worst thing, According to verse 24, it says, Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Meaning, meaning, the worst thing that God can do for us is let us continue to live our life apart from his loving, um, sovereign intervention. Meaning, the worst thing that God can do is to say, Okay, you do what you want to do. You live the way that you want to live. You worship the way that you want to worship. And, and, and Paul says, Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and to impurity and dishonoring their bodies and among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than their creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. So, so what the law does, whether it be the written law of Moses or whether it be the, our conscience, is ultimately it shows something about God and something about us. And what it shows is that we are sinners. And so, and what, what, what we see here in Romans, which I love because he's talking to Christians, but in light of those who do not believe, and he, and he says, it's not only breaking God's law. It's not only breaking God's rules. I mean, that's what most people look at Christianity, and they say, that, that's what sin is. I get it. It's breaking God's rules. Of course, if I do these things, I'm in. If I don't do these things, I'm out. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not just breaking God's law, though he has a law. It, it's, it's bigger than that. It's more broad than that. It's more comprehensive than that. In verse 25 here, it says that they exchange the truth for a lie, and they worship the creature rather than the creator. And so sin in itself is idolatry. Martin Luther said, you, you, you never break commandments two through ten unless you first break commandment number one, thou shalt not have any gods before me, no other gods. And, and idolatry in itself can just be just about anything. It'd be easy for us to say, look at the idolatry of those who do not believe in God. It'd be easy for us to point to those, but yet what we see is there's idolatry in this room. There's idolatry in my heart. There's idolatry in your heart. Meaning, it's when we, when we find ourselves placing our value and our identity and our purpose and our meaning and our motivation on anything other than the person and the work of Jesus Christ, even good things. When you find yourself placing your value in your family, 
and how your kids are going to be raised and what school are they going to go to. When you find yourself placing your value in relationships and your meanings, either your relationship has to be really, really healthy or you're trying to find someone to be in relationship with. When you find your identity in doing really, really good things, serving the church, being a member of a church, coming to church every week, those are all good things. But when those things become the main thing, what Paul says, what the Bible says is, that's idolatry. And, and, and how you can find out what you worship is, what do you think about the most? What do you dream about? What, what are the first things that come to your mind when you wake up? Is it your money? Is it how you're going to provide? Is it what class you're going to take? Is it what university you're going to get in? What, what, what is it? That's how you can find. And usually, they're not bad things. They're really, really good things that we make the ultimate thing. And Paul says, that's the purpose. That's, that's the purpose of the law. It shows you who you are apart from God. It shows you your sinful nature. It shows you that you deserve condemnation because God is holy. And so then Paul asked the second rhetorical question here. Um, in verse, and going back to Galatians here in verse 21, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And so again, he's anticipating questions that may be asked. He goes, okay, we get the promise and we get the law. Are, are they at odds? Are they opposed Meaning, meaning is, is God on one side holy and just as we see in the law? Or, or is God merciful and loving as we see in the promise? Are they against each other? And then Paul answers, absolutely not. Certainly not. Far never be. No way. Not at all. But he says there's two different roles, same, same one purpose. Two roles, one purpose. One role, the role of the law was never, ever, ever meant to save you. The law was good. The law was holy. But the law was supposed to lead you to something. Where is it where we look at the promise, another role. It was supposed to show you God's love. And so the purpose ultimately was salvation. The bad news has to come before the good news. The bad news is that you're a sinner. The good news is that Jesus is a Savior. That, that's what Paul is communicating. And so in verse 22, he says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so God's not double-minded. The way that God reconciles his holiness and his justice and his love and his mercy is ultimately through grace. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And the way that we receive that is by faith and faith alone and grace and grace alone. If you, uh, if you turn the page or look at verse 23, he says this, now before faith came, we were held under captive under the law in prison until faith, until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so that word guarding in there, it says that, that, that the law did something. The law had a good purpose. It was a guardian. So what Paul does now is he takes something that was common in their culture and takes that word guardian and explains it now to lead them to Jesus. Meaning this, a guardian at, a guardian at that time was hired by the Roman cultures. In Roman culture, they hired a slave um, or a bondservant, and the bondservant's role was to take the young kids and instruct the kids and discipline the kids. Um, the picture that you see in, in, um, in history is them walking around with whips and rods. That's what the pictures you see, right? And they were supposed to discipline them and guide them. But it was only for a time. It was never permanent. When those children were able to be raised to maturity, they were able to move on. And that the guardian now was no longer had authority over them. The guardian now no longer had, so to say, power over them. But they were free. Paul uses that to say that's what the law did. And the maturity that we have is not a maturity that we grow into, but is a maturity that we receive by faith and grace to Jesus Christ. And so in verse 24, he says, in order that we might be justified 
by faith. And so the way we reconcile God's holiness and his law, his love and mercy and the promise is ultimately in the work of Jesus Christ. The old covenant that we see was one that God established with Abraham. If you remember the story, he said, Abraham, you're sleeping. This was all up to me. And if I don't do this, may I die. And then we see the new covenant. Jesus, when he institutes communion, something we're going to do right after this, what Jesus says is this is the new covenant. This is the covenant that will last forever. And it's a covenant of love. And ultimately the way that Jesus can establish that is he fulfills what God promises to Abraham. He goes to the cross and then he dies. And he dies ultimately for the penalty of our disobedience. He dies for the penalty of us not living up to the law. He dies because we are sinners so that we may be made right. He dies that we may be justified. He died so that we may become children. He died that we may become one. He died to forgive us of all of our sins. He died ultimately to fulfill something that he promised, that God promised in Genesis 12, something that he pointed forward to in Genesis chapter 3. So God started it by grace. God sustains it by grace. And then God will ultimately finish it by grace. Amen? There's, there's three so what's I have to this, and they're not things that we have to do, but questions I want you to ask that Paul closes in this, in this letter. The first question is, if you really get God's grace, his unmerited favor, and you see that it's always been about grace and it's always been about faith, the first question is, do you live like a child of God? Verse, verse 26 says this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. And so there's, there's a sense that you are a child of God. Do you live like a child of God? And I can't answer that. Does your life is a character? When people see you, do they see a characteristic of you that I know that you live like a child of God? The, the second question that I have here is, do you live like, a new, like you're a new creation in Christ Jesus? Um, what you have here is that it says that you have put on Christ in verse 27. And to put on Christ meaning that you have a new identity, that you've started fresh. Do you still hold on to the baggage that you brought into the relationship with Jesus? Or do you believe that Jesus has freed you? Do, 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 you, do you still hold on to those bags and that, you, that, you, that you bring them in? Or are you completely free? Do you wake up in the morning thinking about what you haven't done or what you need to do? Or do you wake up in the morning thinking what Jesus has already done for you and so you walk freely? And the last question here is, are you one with other Christians. This is one of the only texts in the entire Bible where it speaks of how we relate to culture. And it's verse 28, and it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say that you get rid of your distinctives. He doesn't say that if you're white, you're not white anymore. If you're black, you're not black anymore. If you're a woman, you're not a woman anymore. He says all of those things matter. He doesn't get rid of them, but he says there's something unique that you're a one in Christ Jesus. And you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself this, and we say this all the time. Do, are we one with other Christians? Christians in this room, a part of our own church, and Christians from other churches? Or because of cultural things, meaning open-handed things, how you do music, how they dress, how, how, what they dress when they preach, how do they go to church, what time do they have church, all of those things, are those things closed-hand issues for you that they shouldn't be as opposed to closed-hand issues that did Jesus die for them? Do they believe in Jesus? Are they saved by the same way that I'm saved? It should, grace should produce a humility in us. There's no way that we can look down our, our noses towards other Christians or even anyone who doesn't believe the same way we believe. Because if it's truly by grace and it was an undeserved gift, who are we to boast? Who are we to boast? So, do you live like a child of God? Do you live like you're a new creation? And ultimately, are you one with other believers? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that in the great, great mind of, of yours that you decided to, 
um, not because of us, but in spite of us, to enter in. Romans 1 is a clear picture of every single person in this room. And yet, Father, another clear picture is that Jesus, by the Spirit, enters into our lives and changes our, our direction. God, that you have forgiven us, you have freed us, and you've called us to yourself. And God, we thank you that it's by grace, because if it were not by grace, one, Lord, we, we would have had it. And if we could, we would be those who boast. But Father, I pray that you would lead us and usher into your presence to worship you in response to that. Father, I pray for those who are here in this room who are questioning that, who are questioning you, that you would make yourself real, that you'd make the gospel clear. And Father, they would have the opportunity to respond to your gospel. And Father, for those of us who are here who, who know you, that you would encourage us and grow us by your spirit, that you would fill us. And that we pray as a church in response to this, that we'd be able to bring the gospel to bear to the city around us and to the places around us and our communities and throughout this entire region that people may see the lordship of Jesus, the grace of God, the power of the spirit in and through us. Father, we know that you did not come to us because of us, but because you came to us now in response to you, Lord, we ask that you would continue to move and to work. We pray these things in Jesus' most blessed name. Amen.